Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Monday, October 24th, 2022. It's been 3,161 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 242 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that Russian aviation is suffering from fatigue, deferred maintenance, and parts shortages, impacting mission readiness across the entire Russian Air Force. Second, we assess Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon as a disinformation campaign meant to sow fear and division in an attempt to discredit the Ukrainian government. We do not believe the threat is real nor do we believe that the claim was made to justify using tactical nuclear weapons. Third, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Fourth, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus have become a credible threat and that an invasion of western Ukraine is increasingly likely in the next 45 to 75 days. Fifth, we maintain Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which is becoming increasingly chaotic and will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks. Sixth, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue unabated for the foreseeable future until the Ukrainian electrical grid is completely destroyed, and that wide-scale attacks by drones will continue. Seventh, We maintain that a complete collapse of the Ukrainian electrical grid creates a risk of multiple nuclear accidents if Ukraine's power plants are forced into island mode to sustain cooling. Eighth, we maintain that the mobilization of up to 300,000 troops will have little impact on the battlefield due to poor morale and discipline and a lack of equipment among MOBICs. And the ongoing terror attacks support that Russia's military strategy in Ukraine has failed. And finally, We maintain that the threat of tactical nuclear weapons being used on the battlefield has become extremely remote. Let's get some regional updates, and since it's a Monday, check in with both belligerents' objectives. Per usual, we'll start with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold existing defensive lines, protect remaining lines of communication, called locks, those are supply lines, defend Kherson, prevent envelopment of the western side of the Dnipro River, and restrict insurgent activity. 
the Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. The general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, has relaxed the media blackout in Kherson, while the Russian Ministry of Defense and mill blogger community has taken a we-don't-want-to-talk-about-it-anymore approach. Neither belligerent reported significant fighting, and there was little information in the social intelligence space. Russian occupiers cut off internet service and are limiting cellular coverage, impacting the flow of information. Insurgents set off a targeted attack in Kherson with explosives strapped to a pole that exploded when a car drove by. It is reported one person was killed and three were wounded, but no other details were available. The situation within Kherson continues to deteriorate as gas stations, pharmacies, and grocery stores run out of inventory. Some businesses are engaged in profiteering and prices are skyrocketing. The unofficial exchange rate for the ruble dropped another 50% and is now a one-for-one exchange for the hryvnia. Russian occupiers and their collaborators continue to loot the city, even stealing the statue of Alexander Suvarov from the city center. The internet outage has reportedly been caused by removing critical equipment from the region. OCS did not report the number of airstrikes that were carried out, while ground forces executed 130 fire missions. Assessment here. Russian occupiers likely disabled the internet to contain information about the ongoing retreat from Kherson. Stealing the equipment was just a bonus. Over the last week, Ukrainian forces have significantly reduced artillery fire, and there were only a handful of strikes on river crossing sites. Fighting continues, but Russian forces haven't engaged in large-scale offensive operations since Ukraine launched its second counteroffensive wave. Russian units are likely fighting a rearguard action to support the withdrawal and relying mostly on Mobix as most elite units retreat. The three exceptions appear to be Blachodatne, Snikhorivka, and Bruskinsk. Although there is a lot of fog of war on how much control Russian forces have of Bruskinsk. An editor's note here. With the media blackout relaxing, we share everything we know that we can verify or have a high degree of confidence is accurate. It was really quiet yesterday, especially in comparison to the day before. Ochakiv was shelled from the Kinburn Spit without causing any damage or casualties. At least two Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack hit a block of apartments in Mykolaiv. There was extensive damage, but no reported fatalities. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and ensure the area's civilian population is prepared in the event of a nuclear accident. There was no change in the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There was no update on the three kidnapped Enerhoatum employees or progress on creating a demilitarized zone around the plant. In Enerhodar, the Hotel Alice was hit by rockets, likely fired by HIMARS due to the precision. 
The hotel was frequently used by Russian forces, military leaders, and Rosatom employees. There were no reports of casualties, and Russian sources claim the hotel was empty. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported Nikopol was attacked by Grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The attack damaged civilian housing and a school and wounded five people. A couple in a car narrowly escaped death after a Grad rocket landed right next to their vehicle. The pair was moderately injured but are expected to make a full recovery. Russian and Ukrainian forces conducted artillery duels from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Hulyapola to Orekhiv. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, maintain existing defensive lines, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. Starting with the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR Militia, public relations channel version of the Five O'Clock Follies, officials claimed their forces destroyed a self-propelled howitzer and two tanks. Without any evidence, of course. Ukrainian forces carried out 276 fire missions on the occupied territory, with both belligerents increasing artillery fire along the entire front. After intense shelling on Saturday, elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR launched their first direct assault on Avdivka in a month. It went about as well as every other attempted advance over the last eight years, ending in defeat. Let's pause for some assessment. In May, the Russian Ministry of Defense declared they would not attempt a direct attack on Avdivka due to the strength of Ukrainian defenses, and instead would try to encircle the garrison in the city. At the end of July, however, the DNR launched two weeks of costly and disastrous direct attacks on the city. We maintain that the 1st Army Corps is combat-destroyed and lacks the force and strength to encircle an area as large as Avdiivka. On top of that, Russian forces have lost their artillery advantage and can no longer focus thousands of shells and rockets into a concentrated area along this front. Positional fighting for control of Pervomaisky continued, with Russian forces unable to advance from Pisky. Russian proxy forces also attempted to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevilsky and continued to be unsuccessful. There continued to be pockets of fighting in the eastern areas of Marinka, with the DNR unable to regain positions they lost in August. They do say consistency is key. Both Russian and Ukrainian sources reported significant fighting in Novomikhailivka, with Ukraine launching an attack on positions held by the DNR. Power outages in the occupied territories expanded because it is interconnected with free Ukraine. Almost 5,000 households were without power yesterday, more than twice as many as the day before. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances toward Luhansk, and capture Bakhmut Solidar. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, 
minimize civilian casualties, and defend G-locks. Those are ground lines of communication, which are supply lines that are on the ground. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, had a bad day in Bakhmut, with Ukrainian forces pushing about two kilometers east to the E-40 highway. What took Wagner two months? Ukrainian forces took back in 48 hours. Fighting was intense and Bakhmut was heavily shelled. South of Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on Klishivka while Wagner engaged in intense fighting in Ivanhrad. Russian sources claim that Ukraine launched a counter-strike from Klishivka, which was unsuccessful. Fighting continued east of Solidar, with no change in the situation, and PMC Wagner forces suffering heavy casualties. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, indicated that Kurdyumivka and Ozaryanivka were under a furious artillery barrage. Dropping in with a quick assessment here, artillery strikes of this scale typically precede an offensive. The self-declared leader of the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushlin, visited with troops on the front lines near Mayorsk. See, I was always taught that it was bad form to point a weapon at your own foot— when you're looking a bit silly, stuffed into an ill-fitting plate receiver and awkwardly positioned helmet, standing next to Semyon Pegov of Wargonzo for a picture. Pegov and Pushilin took separate paths after the photo, with Pegov of Wargonzo taking the road less traveled, and he was not better for it. As Taylor Swift would say, he left a part of him in Ukraine. You may remember last week when we called out a Wargonzo reporter for violating every accepted conflict journalism norm by engaging in direct combat? Well, after eight years in Ukraine as a Russian soldier and later, I guess, a pretend journalist, Pegov ran out of luck, stepping on an anti-personnel mine and seriously injuring his foot. A graphic video showed Pegov being unloaded from a Russian BMP infantry fighting vehicle with his foot bloodied and bandaged. He hopped with assistance to an awaiting SUV while grunting in pain. After being loaded into the cargo area, he was transferred to an ambulance and taken to a trauma center. He is currently hospitalized in Donetsk, conscious, bored, and injured in both legs in addition to the foot. A quick sidebar, I feel like usually you have to wait so much longer for the universe to restore balance. Russian forces intensely shelled Dorske and Zarichne, as Russian mill bloggers continue to claim an offensive toward Kremina in Luhansk is imminent. Let's move on to Luhansk. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, make opportunistic territorial gains, and support insurgents. Russian mill blogger Rybar reported that Russian military assets in Starobilsk, Svatov, Rubizhne in Luhansk, and Novoidar were hit by rockets fired by HIMARS. Starobilsk and Novoidar are on the H-21 Highway Ground Line of Communication, or GLOC. Remember, that's a supply line. Otherwise, there were only reports of artillery duels along the rest of the line of conflict. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. 
You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. So in other regions, well, there really wasn't any significant fighting reported. So let's just quickly review the objectives. In the Kharkiv region, the Russian objective is to lock military resources in place, launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services, and break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, the Russian objective is, well, basically exactly the same, to lock Ukrainian military resources in place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale and maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. Okay, quick sidebar because I have a confession to make. It has taken me seven tries not to read that as deer attacks. Like, in the back of my mind, I'm imagining those reindeer with the -the glow-in-the-dark painted antlers in Finland. In my defense, it is very early in the morning. In the Kyiv region and in central and western Ukraine, the Russian objective is, once again, to launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services— and break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to deter attacks and protect civilian lives. On the Russian front, a Russian Su-30 multi-role fighter bomber crashed in the eastern city of Irkutsk, with multiple videos showing the aircraft plummeting straight down into the ground and exploding in a fireball. The flight crew did not eject and were killed on impact. The plane landed in a residential neighborhood, and videos showed multiple homes on fire, though local officials reported no one was killed on the ground. Some assessment here. The Russian VKS continues to lose one to two airframes a week due to non-combat-related crashes. We maintain that increased operational tempo is exhausting pilots, while deferred maintenance and parts shortages are forcing aircraft that should be grounded into the sky. In the Kursk Oblast, Russian leaders have decided to build defensive lines on the Ukrainian border using prefab concrete bunkers, trenches, and half-height concrete dragon's teeth. The construction effort has left military observers and our team asking the critical question, why? There is absolutely nothing to indicate that Ukrainian forces are planning an invasion of Russia. For those of you who are unfamiliar with dragon's teeth, they are concrete pyramids a couple of feet high that are used to impede the movement of tanks. They were very effective in World War II. These dragon's teeth obstacles, however, aren't being embedded into the ground or wrapped with razor wire, and our team is wondering what exactly happens in three months when these will likely be buried under packed snow because of their low relative height. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu called his counterparts in the United States, United Kingdom, France, and Turkey, claiming that Ukraine was preparing to detonate an improvised nuclear weapon, also known as a dirty bomb. 
Officials from the United States, United Kingdom, and Ukraine categorically denied the claim. And U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke with his U.K. counterpart, Ben Wallace, after their respective calls with Shoigu. The Russian Ministry of Defense readout of the calls didn't mention a dirty bomb, but claimed the Kremlin said there was a, quote, steady tendency towards further, uncontrolled escalation, end quote. Moscow is claiming that Ukraine will use the dirty bomb to blame Russia for a weapon of mass destruction attack. One of Russia's justifications for the invasion of Ukraine was the allegation that Ukraine had a secret nuclear weapons program, which is untrue, and Moscow has not provided one shred of evidence to support the claim. The Kremlin has alleged that Ukraine has wanted to weaponize nuclear material and nuclear plants since March. Our assessment here? We don't believe that Ukraine has a dirty bomb, or that they would use one, nor do we believe that Russia is planning a false flag incident with a dirty bomb. The Russian Ministry of Defense has engaged in disinformation campaigns throughout the entire war, alleging nuclear material will be weaponized by Ukraine as what is now a pathetic attempt to break Western support. We also do not believe that the dirty bomb allegation is being made to justify using tactical nuclear weapons. Are you worried? That's exactly what the Kremlin wants. Breathe. This is a nothing burger with a side order of literally nothing. Speaking of nothing burgers, let's talk about Russian mobilization. How would you like to join our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and recent Mobik, Igor Gherkin Strelkov, as a tank driver? See, mobilization is going so very well that Strelkov published an appeal for volunteers on his Telegram channel. You can send a direct message to him at 7938-180-7395 to let him know you're interested in operating a T-62 tank. We sent him a message requesting an interview, but he hasn't responded. A video recorded on October 11th showed Mobix of the 423rd Yampil Regiment and their barracks. The person recording showed they are kept in a darkened hangar and claims there is no bedding or heat. He reported that more than half are sick, and the sound of dry, hacking coughs, like one might have with COVID, could be heard throughout the video. The hangar was so frigid the breath of the soldiers could be seen. A second video recorded while the sun shone through the hangar windows showed the floor covered in trash and Mobix milling around idly. The person recording claimed they have no food or potable water and have been, quote, taking what they need from the local village. At the end of the video, a Mobix shouts, quote, we haven't washed our balls in two weeks, end quote. Clearly, all is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's brief report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Anton Krasovsky, the broadcast director for Russia Today, went on state media yesterday and declared that Ukrainian children should be drowned and burned alive. Russia's top investigative body, the Investigative Committee, said Monday that its chairman Alexander Bastrykin had ordered a report into Krasovsky's statements after receiving a complaint from an online user. 
RT's editor-in-chief Margarita Simonian called Krasovsky's comments, quote, disgusting, and said the network was, quote, stopping our collaboration for the moment, end quote. In economic news, the ruble remained flat over the weekend, with the exchange rate at 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil was expected to open lower, with WTI starting trading at $84 a barrel and Brent at $92. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was expected to open unchanged at $2.61 a gallon, or $0.69 a liter. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures plummeted to 103 euros per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts, down over 9%. Futures dropped on the news that the European Union had slashed its dependency on Russian natural gas by 80%, more than a year ahead of schedule, while holding sufficient reserves to get through the winter months. Chicago SRW wheat futures was down a couple of pennies, trading at $8.43 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.